Welcome to Common Ground Church Rondebosch, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality, rooted in scripture and dependent on God's spirit. The book of Galatians is a gospel clarifying letter that unpacks the richness and completeness of what Jesus did for us in his death and resurrection. It clearly defines what the gospel is and is not for its readers. It helps us realize the depths of God's love for us in a life of relationship and obedience to Him in His power. Please continue listening for today's message. Good evening. I'll be reading to you from Galatians 2, verses 11 to 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the reading of the Lord's word. Good evening, everyone. Uh, at least Jeff, Jeff said good evening, so thanks, Jeff. Um, yes, as, as Jeff mentioned, my name is Josh, and um, I lead the, the students' ministry here at Bosch, so I'm on staff here, and the elders, even, even this elderly elder has invited me to preach today, so very grateful for that. Um, some exciting stuff that has been going on in my life, well, I, I attended one of my good friend's weddings last night, it was such a great experience, Joel, Joel and Candace, some of you were there, I apologize for the dance moves you saw me make, or rather lack of, lack of dance moves, I should say. Um, and what I love about weddings is just being able to reconnect with old friends, friends that have moved away, <coughs> excuse me, from Cape Town, who come back and we're just able to have such an amazing catch up. And so I spend most of my time with friends that have moved on to Joburg and to um, rural KZN on Comserve. Um, and and it's, it's so great to connect because a lot of those friendships I formed in serving in frequency, um, the high school ministry and uh, just being able to serve week in and week out with the same bunch of people really does bring you into a real deep relationship with one another. And so those are amazing ways to form relationships. And what really stood out to me as I was at this wedding is just the contrast um, to that experience, uh, my out of town friends coming back and us catching up and enjoying the, yeah, just the memories that we shared in ministry with the text that we have before us this evening where we get Paul and Peter, both um, men of God, both people that have been saved by Christ, who've experienced God move, have experienced His Spirit, have 
both been honored as leaders in their churches, both called specifically into being apostles for Jesus, and yet there is such a tension between them in this passage, right? It's probably one of the most dramatic showdowns in all of scripture, is, is what we have before us this evening. Because last week, we have um, Paul traveling to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and to set his gospel before them. And um, Peter gives Paul the right hand of fellowship. But in this instance, when Peter travels to Antioch, Peter doesn't get the right hand of fellowship. Peter gets a public rebuke, an open, harsh kind of contradiction from Paul. Last week, Paul sets his gospel before Peter in private, but this week, Peter is just publicly kind of rebuked. And so we need to ask ourselves, why? What's going on here? What is going on? There was that um, announcement for the young, young families picnic. And I wonder if the same thing were to happen at a young families picnic at Bosch, what it would feel like. It's, it's almost as if we were to get maybe a Terry Virgo coming to visit us. Um, from, from England and he, he spends a while preaching to the church and at one of these picnics he acts in a certain way so much so that Rigby decides it's appropriate to stand up and just publicly lay into Terry. It would be quite awkward, right? We'd kind of all just stand there and be like, oh, this probably should have been handled in private. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what, what is going on? What is the big deal? What necessitates such a bold and open rebuke from Paul? in this moment. Was Paul just having a bit of a temper tantrum? Did he, did he just have an awkward slip there where maybe he was just enjoying picking a fight? Or maybe he was out to cancel another um, apostle that was maybe a rival for, for his authority? So all of these questions we're gonna need to answer and the way we're gonna do it is by looking at the conduct, the actions of each apostle here. So we're first gonna consider Peter and then Paul, and for each of these, we're gonna look at what he did, what, why he did what he did, and what happened as a result. And I'm grateful to John Stott for this, this layout. So I'm gonna pray for us, and then we're gonna jump into the conduct of Peter. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word with us today. We're so grateful that we get to just gather freely and open it up. And Father, I pray that, yeah, as we do so, you would be at work in our hearts. Spirit, only you can cause real, genuine spiritual change in our lives. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, come apply this word to our hearts. Let us see the goodness of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. So diving into the conduct of Peter, what did Peter do? Verse 11 opens up with when Cephas came to Antioch. So Cephas is Peter's Aramaic name, as Louise would have mentioned last week. So whenever you see Cephas in, in this passage and in other passages, just know it's talking about Peter, who, the apostle Peter that we normally refer to. Um, and he is traveling to Antioch. And so I've got a bit of a, I've got a map that's gonna show us uh, a little bit more of where this is. I realized afterwards this probably was a bit excessive, I only actually need the, the part on the right-hand corner that says Syria. But um, if you can zoom in with your eyes somehow and see that there are a few towns there, cities, that we would have actually heard of before. 
So Damascus, it's on that little red arrow um, on the far right-hand side. Damascus is where Paul was headed towards when he powerfully met with Jesus. And we heard about that story in the first chapter of Galatians where he talks about that. Jerusalem is just above that word there, Judea. Um, That is where the pillars of the church are. That is where Peter and James and other apostles are. These are Jewish Christians. And um, that is the capital of the the Jewish nation. Um, also under Roman kind of control at this stage. And then today's kind of center of attention is that town Antioch. It's actually not a town, it's quite a big city. It's the capital of that Roman province, Syria. And a lot of Paul's journeys actually start and end there. It's almost like his home base, um, as it were, for his missions operation. And what I love about just setting this up is that if we take uh, take a chance to just pause and look at the book of Acts, when we read some of Paul's letters, we're able to get a whole bunch more information about the context into which Paul may be writing. So it's a helpful tip. If we are ourselves reading through the New Testament, maybe we can learn to go back to Acts and try and see where these events match up. Because Acts 9 details Paul's journey to Damascus where he powerfully encounters Christ. Acts 11 details Paul's travel to Jerusalem where he sets the gospel before Peter. And today's kind of conflict happens probably just before Acts 15. Peter at some point travels to Antioch and we're not exactly told when that happens in the book of Acts, but based on what we read, we know it happens probably just before that moment. And maybe we'll get a little bit into that now or a little bit later. But the point is that Antioch is this massive kind of Gentile city. It is probably home to about half a million people. It's the third biggest city in the the world at that stage. And um, there's a whole bunch of non-Jewish Gentile activity happening there, a whole bunch of different cults and pagan worship happening. And so it's a very kind of vibrant, colorful city, you could say. And this this is where Cephas travels. And it says that in verse 12, when Peter was there, he eats with the Gentiles. He eats with the Gentiles. Now this is quite a significant thing that um, Paul is already saying here because there are a number of reasons why Jewish people would have not eaten with Gentiles, not eaten with non-Jews. To begin with, in Leviticus 11, a chapter I'm sure you're familiar with if you go and read Leviticus, right? Yeah, Ben's nodding. Um, Leviticus 11 details the law of God with regards to food. And so God, when he's revealing himself to Israel, he calls them to abstain, to, to, to not engage with a whole bunch of different foods. So he says, you can eat these, but these ones you cannot eat. The reason is I want you to be different from the nations around you. I want you to be different and for others to know that you are my people, that you are going to look different. And so Gentiles would have naturally eaten some of these foods. I mean, the one that we probably all know of is pork right? Jews do not eat pork. And that was one of the things that God prohibited them from eating. So if, Jew, if Gentiles are, are eating of these kind of foods, then Jews would naturally find it easy to just separate from them in order to not share in the same kind of meals. But more than that, Leviticus actually talks about how if you cook with certain, well, any utensil you use to cook these foods with also becomes unclean. And so if you as a Jewish person are 
sharing a table, sharing a meal with Gentile people who are eating, let's say, bacon. You've got that dish in the middle of the table, they serve the bacon. If you touch that dish, actually, then you also become unclean. So it's not just the food, it's also the knives, the forks, the plates, the bowls, the cutlery, etc., etc. And if you were to become unclean as a Jew, um, essentially you had to go through a whole bunch of rituals to make yourself clean again. So it meant that you had to remove yourself from the community, you couldn't touch other Jewish people, you couldn't go to the place of worship um, for a certain period of time and you had to offer certain sacrifices. And all of that was so that you would be made right again with God and, and made right with your community. Sometimes Gentiles would sacrifice the foods that they were eating to idols. And so again, that's something prohibited by the law that Jews could not eat food sacrificed to idols. So for any number of these reasons, it just makes more sense for Jews to not share food at a table with Gentiles. Even though it's strictly the food that's prohibited, it just would have naturally occurred that you wouldn't eat together. And yet here we get Peter eating with the Gentiles wildly countercultural for Jewish people in that day and age. Not only that, but he was probably also eating the Gentile foods, the very thing that was prohibited. And Paul kind of tips his hand at that when he says um, in verse 14, Peter, you, although a Jew, you live like a Gentile. You live like a Gentile. He's not saying, Peter, although you're a Jew, you eat with the Gentiles. No, he says, you live like the Gentiles, probably meaning that Peter was freely eating whatever the Gentiles were eating. Either way, whether Peter did eat these foods or didn't, the point is that he didn't consider himself defiled, unclean, as the law would have said he was when he was with these Gentiles in Antioch. But then we get this line that certain men came from James. Certain men came from James. Now we're not 100% sure on who this group of people were. We're not 100% sure on what James's involvement is. It's likely that these people traveled from the, Jew, the Jewish church in Jerusalem and were kind of representing James and probably misrepresenting James. Either way, these people were clearly very strictly Jewish. They were probably Pharisees, probably people that insisted on the laws mentioned that in Leviticus 11 with regards to food that you had to observe them in order to be made right with God and right with each other. They were probably also asserting circumcision. And we heard a little bit about this last week when um, Paul travels to Jerusalem to find out if Titus really does actually need to be circumcised. And the Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem say, no, he doesn't. So these people were insisting on these things and they enter Antioch and now we get that Peter withdraws, he separates himself from the Gentiles that he had been eating with. It's almost like these men from James win themselves a convert. So we have to ask why, why did Peter do this? Why did he break the relationships at the church in Antioch that he'd been forming? These probably good, natural, joyful relationships with other Gentile Christians that weren't like him. We know that Peter didn't give in to these men because of some sort of theological conviction. So, so Peter wasn't convinced from scripture, from his experience of God, that, that it was necessary to abstain from these foods. And we know this because Acts 10, again, a reference to Acts, Acts 10 details Peter's encounter with God. 
And Peter is praying and he goes into a trance and God reveals in a vision this massive sheet rolled out from heaven. And God shows him a whole bunch of the animals that would have been prohibited. Some cute little pigs running around, some crabs and various other things. And God says, Peter, go and eat. Get up, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, I can't. I'm, I'm a Jew. I've, I would never. And God says, what I've called clean, what I've made clean, don't call uncommon. Don't call uncommon. And Peter, while he's doing this, or while he's um, in this trance, receiving this vision from God, uh, is interrupted and invited into a Gentile person's home by the name of Cornelius. And he decides that he's gonna take the opportunity to preach the gospel to Cornelius. And Cornelius is powerfully saved. He encounters Christ. And Peter's whole summary of that passage, of, of, of that experience and encounter that he had is that truly I understand that God shows no partiality. God doesn't make distinctions in who he accepts between Jews or Gentiles. That was a key moment for Peter in realizing God accepts Gentiles without the need to adhere to the Jewish law. In Acts 11, Peter actually goes on to defend that encounter. He, he faces up to some other Jewish people of, of um, yeah, the circumcision party that we read of a little bit later, and he stands up to them and he actually says, why he has agreed to preach the gospel to these Gentiles. And in the previous passage, we've got Peter agreeing with Paul, the previous passage in Galatians that we read from yesterday. So did Peter forget this? If, if he's not theologically convinced that it's necessary to abstain from foods, did he forget this? And say, so no, that there isn't any evidence here for that. But verse 12 does go on to say why. It's clear that, circum that Peter was fearing the circumcision party. Peter was fearing the circumcision party. I was joking with Ondela earlier this week and saying that if I got invited to a circumcision party, I'd also be afraid. <laughs> I think you wouldn't be right if you weren't afraid. That's obviously not what's being spoken of. It's talking about these men from James and we're not 100% sure of what Peter's fear exactly was. Perhaps he was afraid of being persecuted um, by these people. Perhaps he was afraid of maybe engaging in conflict with them. Maybe he, he didn't back himself to, well, to articulate the, the truth of the gospel well to these, these men from James, the circumcision party. Perhaps he was simply afraid of losing the approval of this group. It's probably a combination of all of these. Um, but the point is that Peter is not acting in this moment from his conviction. He's not acting from theological conviction. He's actually acting completely against what he believes to be true. His actions, his conduct, is what shows that he is being hypocritical. And that's why Paul gives him that harsh rebuke of hypocrisy in verse 13. So by his actions, he is actually saying that he doesn't agree with Paul. It's not something he necessarily believes, but it's by his conduct that he disagrees. And already at this point, we, we need to just pause and acknowledge the, the weighty truth that even the most spiritually gifted and mature Christ followers, even the most um, yeah, authoritative Christ followers, Peter, are, are capable of sinning, are, are swayed by the fear of man, especially the fear of man. And fear of man can be so detrimental to the proclamation of the gospel. It can really hinder um, one's witness to the gospel. 
You almost get an idea that if we are quite concerned about being culturally relevant or sensitive, that we might also be fearing man to perhaps the degree that Peter was. We might lose out on some of the exclusive claims of Jesus. Because if the gospel really is true, then all of it is true. And we need to boldly declare that. So Peter is giving into this fear of man in some way, shape, or form. And the result, the, the, the result that comes about is that the rest of the Jews were led astray into hypocrisy along with him. Last week, we found out that Barnabas, um, the name Barnabas means encourager. And here we also read that Barnabas himself was led astray, the great encourager, the one who stands with Paul in his, in his um, ministry to the Gentiles. Barnabas was actually the one who first invited Paul to Antioch. He brings Paul there. And he um, travels with Paul throughout the whole of the Gentile world, preaching the gospel and declaring about how God had opened a door to the Gentiles that they would receive Christ through faith. And even this person, the person who's called to a Gentile ministry, he decides to separate himself from the very people he's called to minister to. It's profound, why? Why is, why is that the case? And I think I've, I've often thought about the effect of sin in, in my life and in other lives that I've interacted with as that of a sniper. A sniper rifle is something that is used to take out an individual. It's precise, it's pinpoint, right? You wanna take out a very specific target. But what I think this passage is indicating and the reality of the rest of scripture teaches is that sin is more like a grenade. It's not just gonna take out one person. My sin is not only gonna take out me, no sin is gonna actually explode and the shrapnel is gonna travel in ways I can never predict. It's gonna take out people that I could have never seen it taken out. And not just in the present, but also into the future. And I think part of the reason why I thought of sin almost, like, as, almost as a sniper rifle is because I, I, I swim in, in our culture, which emphasizes that I am really just an isolated individual. That's, that's, the, that's the culture that we swim in, a culture of radical individualism. And it distorts my thinking of sin into thinking it only affects me and not the rest of the people that I engage with. And it also distorts my view of the church, right? I start to not appreciate the significance of the relationships that I form here at church. And, and I see this in my own tendency to be half-hearted in my commitments to life group in my commitments to various kinds of relationships in this church. And yet what scripture, what God calls us to is genuine, long-suffering, patient, enduring relationships with other Christ followers. Because that is massively countercultural, but it's also good for us, right? If Paul had not taken his stand against Peter on that day, if Paul was not engaged in a long-suffering, patient relationship with Peter, who knows where Peter might have gotten himself? Who knows how long it would have taken Peter to eventually recognize that he was at some point wrong? Perhaps the church would have had this constant divide between Jews and Gentiles. We don't, we don't really know all the what ifs, but the point is that these kind of close accountability relationships are key, are key. I think Paul, is a great example of the proverb that talks about how wounds from a friend are faithful. Wounds from a friend are faithful. 
Because in Paul's rebuke here, he's actually caring for Peter. So that is the type of friend that I would want if I were to be swayed by a circumcision party. But now we turn to that friend, the conduct of Paul. So what, what did Paul do? Well, we already know, we've already spoken about how Paul opposed Peter to his face. He rebuked Peter before them all. And Paul didn't hesitate from confronting Peter because of who Peter was, which is quite a, a significant fact. Because at this stage, when Paul is writing this letter, Peter would have been the apostle that was probably more known and probably held more authority. He was, he was called by God before Paul was. He'd walked with Jesus for a much longer period of time. He was given the ministry to the circumcised. And Peter is the person of whom Jesus said, upon this rock, upon Peter, I'm gonna build my church. So when Paul stands up to Peter, he's not standing up to um, a small role. He's standing up to someone who is in a, in a real position of authority and Paul does this completely alone. How is it that Paul dared to do this? Why did, why did Paul do this? I kind of asked at the start if this is Paul just having a bit of a temper tantrum or perhaps pushing his, his luck and, and trying to win some credibility to himself. But I think it's clear that, that this isn't the case. Verse 14 gives us the reason why Paul did this. Paul had a deep concern for the truth of the gospel. He had a deep concern for the truth of the gospel. Something in what Peter was doing, something in Peter's withdrawal and separation from the Gentiles was contradicting the truth of the gospel. And so this, this wasn't a, a trivial matter for Paul. This was a matter of utmost importance, which is why Paul uses such strong language as he says, Peter, you stood condemned. You stood so very clearly in the wrong because you are on such a massive topic going astray. And the reality is all of Paul's argument in Galatians up until this point has been to show that the gospel that Paul preaches is authentic. It is the true gospel. It is the authoritative gospel, right? We heard in chapter one how he, he received his gospel from God himself, direct revelation. Didn't get it from anyone else. We know that he didn't interact with other apostles until a number of years later. And when he did, the passage we read last week, when he did go to Jerusalem, they gave him the thumbs up, the right hand of fellowship. They approved of his gospel. And so this confrontation again continues to prove that Paul's gospel is the true gospel because when those very same apostles who give the right hand of fellowship, when those very same apostles who approve of Paul's gospel go astray, when they deviate from his gospel, his gospel is the one that brings them back into alignment. And so we get a sense as to why Paul had to be so public in his confrontation of Peter. It was over something really important, over the truth of the gospel. More than that, Peter's sin had also been public, right? So Peter had publicly separated himself from the Gentiles, and so a public rebuke was required. A public correction was necessary. In general, I don't think that we should, if most of our confrontation is happening in the same way that Paul is confronting Peter here, I think we're probably getting something wrong because God doesn't call us to ministries of criticism. He doesn't, he doesn't call us to that. There's a, there's a phrase that we, we love to use at Common Ground, which is encourage in public, encourage one another in public. So make much of someone in public, but 
rebuke or confront in private. And I think that's a helpful safeguard when it comes to moments like this. And, and to be fair, Paul probably had that in mind, but the point is here that this was on such a massive issue that he had to completely override that without even a second thought. So he was warranted in this. Paul had the spiritual discernment to note that the root of this behavior from Peter and the rest of the Jews was contradicting the truth of the gospel. So what is this authoritative, authentic gospel? What is the truth of the gospel that Paul is preaching? Verse 15 and 16 give us Paul's kind of central focus. It's almost the, the heart of the gospel that he preaches in this letter. I'll read it for us. It says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's the heart of the gospel. And we're gonna spend a lot more time next week looking at these verses and the following verses and hopefully defining some of those terms there, justify, justification. But the heart of Paul's message is that if you wanna get right with God, if you wanna be accepted by God, it's not gonna come through anything other than faith in Christ. Nothing other than faith in Christ is gonna make you acceptable to God. No amount of works that you do, no amount of conditions that you wanna try and achieve are gonna make you right with God. It is purely faith in Christ. And so to any of us in the room who are not Christian, who are maybe exploring the claims of Jesus, I really want you to hear this message. This is the message of the gospel. That if you come to trust in Jesus, that is what makes you right before God. There isn't anything else required of you to be made right with him. So that's the truth of the gospel, but we haven't really wrestled with how Peter's conduct actually contradicts that truth, right? Both Paul and Peter agree that God accepts sinners through faith in Christ and in his finished work on the cross alone, nothing else required. Both Paul and Peter agree that there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles are alike in their sinfulness. They are alike in their need for salvation and they are alike in the way that salvation is gonna be made available to them, namely faith in Christ. And so if God is accepting everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, on that same basis, then who does Peter think he is to separate Jewish Christians from Gentile Christians? based on diet. If God does not require the law to be made right with him, if he does not require Jewish customs to be justified before him, then how does Peter think he can impose some kind of condition on the Gentiles in order to be in relationship with Peter? God accepts Gentiles based on faith alone, but Peter rejects them on that basis. If God welcomes the Gentiles into a relationship with God, how can Peter reject them? How can Peter withdraw from them? God has moved towards them with reconciliation. He's invited them into a relationship with him based on Christ and Christ alone, and yet Peter wants to withdraw based on some other point. Peter knew that faith in Jesus was the only condition on which God would have a relationship with sinners. He knew that, but he added Jewish customs as an extra condition on which he was prepared to have relationship with these Gentile Christians. 
why verse 14 goes on to say that Peter was forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews. He was forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews. And if you look back to last week's passage, we read of the, the false brothers that sneak into the church who are forcing Titus to be circumcised. And so alarm bells should be going off when we read this because suddenly Peter is in the same category as false brothers, people that are not actually Christ followers, people that have slipped in to bring people back into slavery. That's what that passage teaches. So we get a sense of why Paul had to be so harsh here. The spiritual discernment of Paul was to see that the heart of Peter's withdrawal from the Gentiles was that he actually didn't grasp the acceptance that the gospel alone provides. The gospel alone provides that kind of acceptance. And so the question that we need to be asking ourselves is, are we potentially making the same mistake as Peter? Are there areas that we could be doing this? Are we refusing relationship with other Christ followers based on some kind of condition we impose upon them other than faith in Christ? Are you uncomfortable with accepting Christ followers of a different race or culture to you? Because that's, that's the essence of what Peter is doing here. And just to say that if this is something that ha you've experienced, being excluded on those bases or bases, this, this text is so clear that this is not God's heart. This is not God's heart for the gospel. But perhaps it goes beyond race and culture. Perhaps it's the political party that you more identify with. Perhaps it's your stance on vaccine mandates or COVID mandates, whatever it may be. Are there any areas in your life that you want to separate yourselves from other Christians on? And there are plenty of voices in the world, plenty of voices on campus that would insist that you separate yourself from other Christ followers on some kind of basis other than faith in Jesus. There are voices that would immediately exclude you because of something other than faith in Christ that say you can't participate in this conversation because of X, Y, Z. And actually these voices effectively insist that the gospel cannot be the sole basis for acceptance. They make out these other conditions to be irreconcilable by the gospel. So if you wanna separate yourself from other Christ followers, this is a profound problem. That's what this text is making very clear. To do so is grievous to the gospel, it is an insult to God, and it is an insult to brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. They are accepted by God. How, how dare we impose some other condition on accepting them ourselves? So on what grounds can we enjoy fellowship and acceptance with other Christ followers? It has to be the gospel. It has to be the gospel. What happens as a result of Paul's boldness in confronting Peter? While this scripture is remarkably clear and candid on the shortcomings of Peter, it is also really encouraging because reading the whole of scripture, we know that this isn't the end of the line for Peter. Peter isn't simply written off by Paul in this moment, never to return to his, his role as, a, as an influential leader in ministry. And in our cultural moment, that is so encouraging because our, our culture loves demonizing leaders and leadership in general. If you, if you make a mistake as a leader, you are that mistake and there is no comeback for you. Whereas 
what we know is that this is not the case in Peter's life. We know that Peter continues to lead the church. He goes on to write two letters that are included in the New Testament. And in those letters and some of Paul's future letters after Galatians, we get this amazing brotherly affirmation of each other from each other's letters. That's a confusing statement. But Peter at one point says that Paul writes things that are difficult to understand, which people twist as they do the other scriptures. And so we have Peter affirming that what Paul is writing is scripture. And we've got Paul affirming Peter's role in the church in Corinthians. So there's this amazing affirmation that comes out of this. And if we go back to the book of Acts, Acts 15, the part that probably happens soon after this encounter, we get an event that is called the Jerusalem Council. And the Jerusalem Council is essentially the place where this matter is decided upon once and for all in those regions. Can Gentile Christians be accepted by God without adhering to the Jewish law? And they answer a wholehearted yes. Peter answers a wholehearted yes. He, he stands up at one point and confronts a, a, a circumcision party and he says in verse 10 of Acts 15, now therefore, why are you, you Jews, putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter's aware that he hasn't been able to stand up to the Jewish law. He goes on, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will, just as the Gentiles will. And so this is incredibly encouraging because we know that God is still at work in Peter's life. God is still at work in Peter's life. If he applies the gospel to his life, which he does from this point on, he is restored. And it's interesting to note that Paul doesn't call Peter to greater courage. Right? Peter was fearing the circumcision party, but Paul doesn't say to Peter, you're not walking in step with the courage that you should have at this stage of your Christian life. That's not what he says. Paul calls Peter back to the gospel. He calls him back to the truth of the gospel. Of all the, of all the truths that, that Paul could use to rebuke Peter or to, to sharpen him, to shape him, to correct him, he decides to go to the most basic of them the truth of the gospel. Why is that the case? I love this quote from Dane Ortland. He says that Paul knows that the gospel is not a once-off vaccination that spares us from hell, but food which nourishes us all the way to heaven. Food which nourishes us all the way to heaven. Paul knows that Peter actually needs this food. He knows that if Peter is gonna grow in his Christian life, he needs to go deeper into the truth of the gospel. And Dane Orton goes on to say that it's almost like we as Christ followers need to consistently be exposed to the gospel like a cancer patient needs chemotherapy. We need the, the cancer of our, of our desire for self-approval to be taken out by the truth of the gospel. And it only happens as we continuously go back to it. So this, this gospel message is not just for non-Christians, it's for Christ following brothers and sisters like yourself and me. And that is incredibly encouraging. I'm gonna start to close in a, in a moment and um, Jeff is gonna hop up and he's gonna lead us into a time of communion where we reflect on the truth of the gospel, of what God did for us. But I just wanna make a few more points on the radical implications of what we are about to come and do. As we, as we approach the table, as we approach the 
bread and the juice. We know that those elements represent the body and the blood of Christ, the sole basis upon which we are made right with God, the sole basis on which we are accepted with God. But it's also the sole basis on which we are accepted between one another. And so if we think of Peter in Antioch sharing meals with the Gentiles, eating with the Gentiles, he wouldn't just have eaten your, your normal breakfast, lunch, dinner. He would have also shared in the Lord's Supper with Gentiles, breaking the same body, the same bread, probably drinking from the same cup. I think it's safe that we don't do that with germs and everything. But the point is he would have been sharing the same meal. There isn't, there isn't a, a Lord's Supper for the Jews and a Lord's Supper for the Gentiles. There's one Lord, one body, and we get to participate in that this evening. And that is a profoundly Christian way of relating to people. So I'm gonna pray for us. Jeff is gonna hop up and then we're gonna go into communion. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing truth of your gospel. God, we thank you that in order to be made right with you, in order to be accepted by you, there is nothing we can do. There is nothing we can do other than faith in your son, Jesus, other than look into him, seeing his life, his death, his resurrection, and trusting in him. God, we thank you that that is the only requirement. We thank you, God, that that is a radically inclusive aspect of your message, that anyone who puts their faith in Christ is made right with you. And yet, God, we also appreciate that this is an exclusive claim, that it's Christ and Christ alone, that there is no other thing we can add to the gospel in order to be made right with you. So God, I pray that we would draw more deeply from these truths. I pray that this would shape us more. I pray that this would impact the relationships in our lives. Spirit, would you come and make us aware of the parts of our lives where we are alienating ourselves from other Christ followers on something other than the gospel. Come and reveal to us where this is happening. and Come and show us how the gospel is the answer. Rid us of our own need for self-approval. Rid us of our need to impose conditions on others when you haven't imposed a condition on us. We pray come and do this in our lives. Amen.